John chapter 20. For decades, we have been reading this text together on uh, Easter mornings as a congregation, but the circumstances of this particular Easter, I think, warrant a closer look. Never in my lifetime has the church looked more like it did on that first Easter morning than it does, uh, to my view, today. A few deeply devoted Christian women and everyone else scattered and in their homes. It's not for fear that uh, we are scattered, is it? But out of love for others and obedience to our civil authorities that it is today uh, during this current pandemic. But the resemblance is striking, isn't it? Yet, it, would it be inaccurate? Would it be inaccurate for, for us to say that we are experiencing some degree of fear, even in our Christian homes? Does not the uh, formless, misty fog of fear that hangs low over our streets also creep in under our doors and its wispy fingers begin to brush up against our hearts too. As the angel of death made its way through Egypt, taking the firstborn of every home, did not the inhabitants of those homes, shielded even by the blood-stained lintels, remain unaffected by the events that were taking place around them? Dear flock, we are always, we are always, even as Christians, we are always, aren't we, every one of us, finding ourselves somewhere on that spectrum that ranges from fear to faith. Every one of us. Watch as these early Christians move from one extreme of that spectrum all the way to the other over the course of just a few hours in a single day, that first Easter Sunday after we pray. Father, we ask Your blessing once again upon Your Word with the confidence that Your Word will never return to You void, but always accomplish that for which You have sent it. We've had much to say about our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've cried out to You, and now, especially and particularly, we pray that You will send the Holy Spirit upon us with might and power, opening our ears to hear marvelous things and our hearts to receive them deep within, and then our lives to reflect them. We pray for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 20. Read the first 22 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. 
But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and, and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and, and that He had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Let's stop there. All of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels tell us that the first ones to visit the empty tomb and therefore the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Four women in particular are, are mentioned by name. Mary, the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene. And, and there were other unnamed women as well. But only John tells us of Mary Magdalene's singular experience being the very first person actually to meet the risen Jesus. This is remarkable because, because no ancient 
culture would ever have dreamed of making women such prominent witnesses. So little was the opinion of women regarded in the culture of that time that their testimony would not even be what would be useless in court. Why Celsus, an, an early uh, critic of Christianity, dismisses the biblical account entire as simply the testimony, quote, of an hysterical female. But who is this woman whom Celsus so curtly dismisses? Well, let's go back a bit. We do know about Mary Magdalene from the Gospels. She hailed from, of course, Magdala, hence her name, a town uh, situated about three miles from Capernaum and where Jesus spent a lot of time. So we're not at all surprised, are we, that Jesus met her along the way. And it's especially unsurprising because uh, she was a conspicuous figure there in Magdala for a couple of reasons. She was a woman of some means, comparatively rich, I think we can deduce, and she had been cruelly subjected to seven demons. Jesus, we remember, had purged her of her demons, of those demons that had possessed her, and Jesus understood her. Jesus became her Savior. And Mary, in turn, followed Jesus with a singular fervor. So you can understand how this woman has come to love Him and love Him deeply, who has been forgiven much loves much. As I've gotten to know Mary better over the past several days, I've, I've read her described as, as Peter's feminine counterpart among the disciples. A woman by nature very passionate and impetuous, wholehearted and all out for whatever she enlisted, filled with unusual power was Mary. But more than anything else, more than anything else, Mary Magdalene was a woman of deep and abiding love for her Savior. We see that in the Gospels as she constantly remained among the women who followed Jesus everywhere, serving Him, caring for Him, ministering to Him, uh, to all of His needs. It was from these women's means, and not least for Mary Magdalene's, that Jesus' food and Jesus' shelter and His clothing came. But that attachment to her Lord really shines, doesn't it, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem to suffer many things, as the Gospels say, and to be put to death. Where was Mary then? She was right there. Likely, she witnessed the events of Good Friday morning, walked the way of the cross following Jesus to Calvary. And when at the cross, all of the disciples, all of the disciples except for John, but including Peter, fled, where was Mary? Where was Mary Magdalene? Right there. Standing right there displaying what Abraham Kuyper called sufficient 
feminine resilience to be able to witness the death of the mediator. Others would have been broken by this. Would have been dashed by all of this. Mary was not. Even after all the events at Golgotha, she remained resolute in her loving devotion to Jesus. She watched with the other women very carefully where Jesus was laid and entombed and prepared spices and perfumes for His burial as an act of enduring love. For all of Mary's feminine resilience, her passions also flowed in tears. That Sunday morning finds her standing in the early light of dusk alone at the tomb. And that dusk finds a burdened woman. She is now bereaved of the one she loved so dearly. One wonders if perhaps she'd even harbored some, some lingering sense of betrayal. The hopes that had been built within her heart by Jesus now dashed to the rocks by His death. And with those tears, can we not also sense some fears? Seven demons have been cast from her. Now what assurance has she that those seven devils will not come back in the future? How will they be kept at bay? So sadness and fear and love. These three. Do you remember from our time in Corinthians together not very long ago that sacred triumvirate faith, hope, and love? These three. Well, Mary had one out of three left. And it wasn't faith. And it wasn't hope. But she did have love. She did have love. But hope and faith, these had been displaced by sadness and fear. But she still has love. Love had brought her to that tomb in the first place. And now when everyone had left the tomb, and maybe they'd even urged her as they were leaving, come now Mary, it's time to leave. Time is too dangerous to stay here. Go home. It was love that kept her lingering there. You see, it was the last place she had seen Him. Even though the Lord was not there, where else could she go? Just try to imagine. Try to imagine what Mary's feeling at this point. She'd seen the execution of the one she loved more than anyone else in all the world. I doubt that she has slept. If at all, it's been very fitful. Maybe she hasn't even eaten. She's lost her appetite. And now, she is a woman alone. Utterly. Completely. Alone. also overwhelming that she bursts into tears. 
Now at some point she peeps into the tomb as John had, had peeped into it before, but, but it's, it's not the linen clothes this time that, that catch her attention. Rather, it is two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. When they asked the question, woman, why are you weeping? She, she answers simply, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid Him. Now isn't this something? At that moment, the, the reason for which we today have the greatest joy, the fact that change the complexion of the entire universe, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the fact that He is missing from that tomb, the historic fact on which the entire message of the good news of the Gospel stands or falls is for her at that particular moment a matter of deep and blinding grief. Isn't it something that the, the things that, that bring our deepest grief are sometimes also the prelude for our greatest joy? Now, I don't know why she turned around at that moment. For centuries, the question's been asked, and there have been many theories. Did she, did she hear his footfall? Uh, did the angels look over his shoulder and, and begin to beam uh, brightly with joy at the sight that they saw? Uh, John Chrysostom, the uh, wonderful, great early Christian preacher, supposed that the angels had made some motion of the hand or of the eye over Mary's shoulder to direct her attention to the man standing behind her. I don't know, but for whatever reason, she turns around and there's Jesus. Now, isn't that remarkable? Who had been at the tomb that morning? Peter had been at that, the one who had made that mighty confession, you remember. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God to whom Jesus has said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The disciple John, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple who had leaned up against Jesus' breast at the supper a few days before had been there at the tomb. But the pierced feet of Jesus did not make their way across the garden to meet either of them. Only Mary Magdalene. The one out of whom he had cast seven demons, the one who loved much because she had been forgiven much. To her, he came. To her first. To her alone, he entrusted himself and the honor of his very first appearance after his resurrection from the dead. But still, deep in her grief, the depth of which, by the way, is the measurement also, isn't it? It's the, uh, it's the gauge of the depth of her love. 
I say still in her grief, she's blinded by tears and still gripped by the tremors of fear. You know how that is, don't you? You know how it is after a funeral. Maybe someone uh, whom you love very much, you get home from that funeral and someone says to you, oh, wasn't that wonderful that so-and-so showed up at the funeral? We haven't seen him in years. And you say, who? Uh, I didn't see him. In fact, I, can't, I couldn't tell you who was there. Why? Because the grief and the fear blind us. It's very hard to see much, if anything, clearly when all around us is blurred by tears. So even though it is the Lord Jesus standing there, she does not know that it is He. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So distraught she, supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Did you hear that? I will take him. She doesn't even say his name. Just Him. Because for Mary, there is only one Him in all of the world. Him. This too is an indication of the depth of her love, isn't it? Look at the other pronoun. I will take Him. How? Does Mary propose to carry an adult male corpse wrapped in what is likely around a hundred pounds of spices, but she says, I will take him away. Don't you wonder how Jesus felt when he heard Mary's devotion and love for him? She turns away from him, from the gardener, and then just then he says one word that changes everything. Mary. He says her name. How do you think it sounded to her? That, that sound of her name right then. What do you think happened in her heart when she heard uh, that familiar voice? When his heart spoke that one word of affection directly to hers, that beautiful word, her own name. What happened in that instant? I tell you, her heart leaped spiritually from one end of that spectrum to the other, all the way from fear to faith. Her fear was banished. Her faith was inflamed. The gloom of her grief was instantly dispersed and the joy rushed into every corner of her heart. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He knew her heart. And he understood her soul. You know, if this were a sermon about proving the truth, the historicity of the resurrection, this alone would be sufficient to demonstrate it. He didn't go to Pilate. You know, he didn't appear to, to Herod. He didn't even go to the Jewish leaders who had called for his crucifixion. 
He didn't even go to the eleven. He goes, he appears to a woman who has no credit apart from her deep love for him. Dear flock, and all of you in the hearing of my voice, Jesus, hear this, Jesus is doing the same thing today. The very same thing. He comes to people who have no no credit, no power, no influence, no greatness in the world to show Himself to people like, like you and like me. And He calls us by name. He does this because He knows us. He knows His sheep. And His sheep know His voice, don't we? When He calls them. And when He does, and you receive Him, when you welcome Him, and welcome Him again, all fear is banished and faith takes its place. The one who is forgiven much loves much. The more forgiveness, the more love. He enters into a relationship with us. The risen Savior does. He has with us who are His Notice this relationship. We'll take just a few minutes, the remainder of our time, to look at, at three aspects of this risen resurrection relationship he has with us. First, notice this it is a tender relationship. Remember what was prophesied about him almost a millennia before his appearance as a man on the earth? You remember those words of the prophet that a bruised reed he will not break? smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Watch as he, as he deals with Mary. Knowing that she didn't even recognize him and why, she, he asks her the very same questions as the angels have just moments before. Woman, why are you crying? I didn't ask, ask it because he didn't know the the answer, this is not a fact-finding tour by Jesus and a couple of brightly dressed men. They know full well why she is crying, but listen now as Jesus takes the matter a step further. Who is it that you're looking for? Who is it that you're looking for? It's a simple, straightforward enough question, but one that she would understand better later as she reflected back on this conversation. Who indeed is she looking for? If she had been believing at that moment in the One for whom she was looking, she would not have been weeping. Who did she think Jesus was? After all, who, was, he, was He all that He had told her that He was? Was He the Son of God? Was He all the, um, the Almighty who appeared to Isaiah in the temple? Was it He who had said, I am the resurrection and the life? Or was He something much less than that? Who is she looking for anyway? But Jesus, 
softly and tenderly, with gentleness and patience and love. Mary, he says. And immediately her fearful unbelief is replaced with the faith that should have been governing her thoughts all along. Now, how often are you not and I in exactly the same spot? We know cognitively that Jesus is all powerful, don't we? We know that He rules over all. And yet, yet we still wonder. And we're not quite ready to believe. We confessed it just a few minutes ago. His promises when circumstances are overwhelming. When times of particularly difficult things come our way and we can't seem to see any further than the blur of our tears welling up in our eyes. Or when obedience to His commandments is is just so, so costly. And when fear comes and sets in once again, we don't really believe that Jesus is in control. That all things simply must work together for our good and for His glory. That in the end, He will present Himself and us with Him triumphant over everything. At those times of our unbelief, Jesus comes to us with His Word and by His Spirit with a firm but gentle voice. Mary. John. Put your name in there. Come now. For whom are you? Who am I? You know who I am. You know me. I am the Lord. Believe. You know who I am. And hearing His voice, we follow Him again, don't we? Because the sheep know their shepherd's voice. Here's the answer to the prayer that we pray with that man in the Gospels. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here is His answer to you. When you pray that prayer, He comes to you. Just like you came to Mary. To transform your, your unbelief into belief. Your fear into faith. Your broken life again made whole. Your sorrows Replaced with joys. Your sorrows transformed into gladness. Discovering Him again. Alive. Presenting Himself to us. The poet Elizabeth Rooney surely captured it wonderfully in this way. Now is the shining fabric of our day torn open, flung apart, rent wide by love. Never again the tight and closing sky. The blue bowl or the star-illumined tent. We are laid open to infinity. For Easter 
love has burst his tomb and ours. Now nothing shelters us from God's desire. Not flesh, not sky, not stars, not even sin. Now glory waits so he can enter in. Now does the dance begin. There's a second aspect to this relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. Mary needed to understand this, that, that, that this was now the case. He would not be with them like He had been with them before. Verse 17, Do not hold on to Me, He says to Mary. Not because she couldn't physically touch Him in His resurrected state. We know that it won't be long before He's telling Thomas to do that, to reach out, to, to touch His hands and His side. Put His hands in His side. Of course, for very different reasons He told Thomas that. That's not the reason for His refusal here to Mary. It was that Mary needed to learn that the relationship has changed. It was now a resurrection relationship. Things would be, would be different. Things would be better. For Jesus was ascending to the Father. True, He'd no longer be there for them to touch with their hands. For her to grasp with her hands, with her loving arms, or to see with the eyes of their physical bodies, but something much better would be instead. Better because they no longer have to search Him out in, in Jerusalem when they were in Bethany. Or in Capernaum when they were down in Bethlehem. Now Jesus would be with them always and everywhere. He was. He is. With us. Always. And everywhere. No, we don't have Jesus with us physically. We can't go shake His hand. And the CDC would probably tell us not to anyway in these days of social distancing. We can't hear His audible voice with the ears of our bodies. But Jesus is here. He is here now. And always, He is with you. And third, our resurrection relationship with Jesus is one of Later on that evening, Jesus will find the disciples where? Hiding. Frightened. Huddled. The doors barred and locked tight. They are clustered in a corner out of fear. Fear of the Jews. And why not? If they killed their leader, why could they not pick them off too? It seemed entirely reasonable to conclude. Peace is the last thing they have. They have fear. They have turmoil. They have concern. They have indecisiveness. They have confusion. And suddenly, Jesus appears in their midst. <laughs> what is His first word for them? Note also the gentleness. you they are petrified and he brings peace suddenly fear is banished anxiety disappears at the sound of jesus shalom 
It was a common salutation, in common use, but they, they knew there was more to this. It was, it was that word that brought back to them the words that Jesus had told them before the crucifixion. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. These days in which we're living have been unnerving, to say the least. Uncertainty, dis-ease, and fear have visited our homes and our hearts in new ways. But for you who have met the risen and living Christ, who have received and are relying on Him, there is a peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Those of you who know this, who have it, who enjoy it, know exactly of what I speak. You have moved from fear to faith. But those of you who have not yet received Him, now I say to you, listen. Listen for His voice. Listen for Him calling you by name. Listen for His voice. And when He does, when He calls your name, follow Him. Follow, receive, and follow Him. He is risen from the dead. And, and to those who love our Lord Jesus, because He lives, all fear is gone. Amen.